Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You are listening to Dr. Scott Hahn, Father Scanlon Chair of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled, Understanding Our Father, The Power of the Seven Petitions, Part 2. Dr. Hahn's talk was part of the Student Leadership Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I'm assuming that almost all of you were here last night, and so I'm not going to go back over what we covered, but I want to build upon it by reminding you of some of the salient points that we were making, especially at the beginning, because the Our Father is something we pray so often, but we ponder seldom. And it came to us from the lips of our Lord after an entire night of prayer when the disciples approached him and asked them, asked him to teach them how to pray. But it wasn't just a sort of, you know, on the spot coming up with sort of a, you know, improvised prayer. This was obviously the way he prayed, the way he wanted us to pray. And in the process, he gave to us what the tradition calls the most perfect of prayers, because as we saw in the Catechism 2765, it not only shows us what to pray for, but in the proper order, in that kind of sequencing. So we notice that there are three thys, thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will, before there are the last four petitions that are give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. We looked at the first three yesterday. We're going to consider the last four this morning. But I want to begin by pointing out something that might not be obvious because it's there in the Greek, and that is the verbal tense for all four of these petitions. Give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us are in the imperative tense. What does that mean? It means that they're expressed as demands. And we have to wonder, wait a minute, is there some mistake in the Greek? How can we employ words with a verbal tense of the imperative? Who are we to demand anything of God when in fact he owes us nothing? And yet we owe him everything. And yet look at what he's given us. But once we look at what he's given us and we recognize that he has given us his son to make us his children, things, you know, that's something that we would not be by nature. By nature, I am the son of Fred and Molly Lujan because it was through them that I was begotten. It is not by nature that we are children of God. It is only by supernature, the supernatural grace of Jesus Christ, whereby he took what is ours, human nature, to give us what is his, divine nature. We have no claim on supernatural grace, divine sonship. By nature, God is our master, our Lord, our lawgiver, and our judge. And yet, despite the fact that we owed him everything and gave him next to nothing, he gave us infinitely more than we ever owed him by giving us Christ, by imparting to us the means by which we can come to share in nothing less than his own divine sonship. And that isn't just pious fiction. That isn't just religious rhetoric. In 1 John 3, verse 1, we hear, Behold what manner of love that Father has given us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are, unquote. We're not just called the children of God, we are reborn, like we were born the first time in our natural family. We are regenerated into God's own family. That's our identity. That's our ontology. That is much, much more than a metaphor. That is a metaphysical reality that tells us not just who we are for 70, 80, 90 years as we deal with our family members and relatives, it's who we're going to be in 80 or 90 trillion years, which will be the first morning of eternity. So when we look at the imperative tense, we realize that God has conferred upon us the means by which we can ask of him things that we could never do apart from Christ. So we've got to make sure that we're never apart from Christ. Because then and only then can we say, 
what? We can say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us, but not into temptation, and deliver us from the evil one. That's leverage. <laughs> so let's use it. But let's look first at petition number four, which is the first of the last seven. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice it's give us. It's not give me. Give me, give me, give me. You know, this prayer is the means by which God uproots this inherent individualism, this selfishness that is sort of the lethal legacy that our parents bequeathed through original sin, whereby we really make ourselves the center. You know, we don't add anything to God when we serve Him. We don't add anything to Him when we praise Him. So why does He command us to praise Him? Not because it adds something to Him, but because it adds everything to us. He doesn't need it, but He knows that we do. So that when we open up our hearts and minds to give Him thanks, to give Him praise, and to ask Him for our daily bread, He is not only giving it to me, He's giving it to you, He's giving it to us, because God is a father who is fathering a family, He's not just a coach who's talking to individual superstars and then leaving the, the rest of us just to kind of find our way. So give us this day our daily bread. It's give us. And it's give us this day our what? Daily bread, not our steak and lobster. <laughs> right, so it really corresponds to the necessities of life. We ask God to give us what we need and not everything we want. And why? because we've got to learn to trust Him more and ourselves less. And the previous one, you know, when we pray, as we did, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're basically asking God to do is not our bidding, but to conform our wills to His, so that we desire what He wants, and only what He wants, precisely because He wants it. And once we get that straight, then we're really safe to pray for ourselves because we're not manipulating God in some kind of magical or mechanical way. Not in our prayers and not in the sacraments. The sacraments are not, you know, magical rituals whereby we get God to do our will. It's much more of a fatherly grace that empowers us to not only do His will but to desire it first. So give us this day our daily bread, the things that you know we need. But I also want to point out something that's kind of quirky. Give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't that seem a little redundant? Now that might seem rather irreverent to even ask, you know, but give us this day our bread, or give us our daily bread. Wouldn't either suffice? So, you know, why the redundancy? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, it's Jesus, Scott. Don't, you don't ask questions like that. <laughs> well, the early church fathers did, and so I feel safe. <laughs> Where in Scripture, besides the Lord's Prayer, do we see a precedent for this sort of thing? Give us this day our daily bread. It's not in the New Testament, it's rather in the Old. You go back to the book of Exodus, and when God delivered his firstborn son, Israel, from bondage in Egypt, he did so through the Passover. He did so through the lamb. He did so through the bread that brought them to freedom in life. But between coming out of Egypt and arriving at Mount Sinai to renew what? Was it a sacred contract? No, it was a covenant. In order to renew a covenant, to restore these kinship bonds between God the Father and Israel, his family and firstborn son, what did he do? He had to kind of regain their trust. And so how did he do it? By supplying their needs. And what were they clamoring for? Food. They're walking through the desert. And so what did he supply? provisions. And what do we call it? Manna. Which in Hebrew means, what's that? <laughs> so every morning, what happened? 
They woke up, they got out of their tents, and they found manna on the ground. And they gathered it. And what did God promise? The very thing he fulfilled. There was always enough to satisfy your appetite. And then, of course, you know, if you wanted a little bit, you know, leftover for a late night snack or tomorrow's breakfast, you'd wake up the next morning and what would happen to the manna that you had gotten from the day before? It spoiled. So what was God doing? He was giving them each day their daily bread and nothing more, but nothing less to win their trust. Except on day six. On the sixth day, they would gather a double portion because miraculously, what would happen on the seventh day? Two things. Number one, there was no manna out there. And if they went looking, they would be laboring in vain. Besides, you shouldn't be laboring on the Sabbath. But on the seventh day, the provisions that they'd picked up the day before, the double portion, didn't spoil. And so God was renewing a covenant. God was restoring trust. God was fathering his family. They were basically trusting and depending on him in a whole new way. This is what Jesus is referring to. And while we need the reminder, those 12 disciples wouldn't. Because as good, devout Jews, they would have immediately recognized, give us this day our daily bread. Oh, that's like the manna in the wilderness. And you know that's what Jesus intended because later on, what does he do in the Bread of Life Discourse? He speaks about the manna that Moses gave to them in the wilderness, but then he says, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. The bread which is given for the life of the world is my flesh to eat, there in John 6. So at one level, we're just praying for our daily needs, our bare necessities, if you will. Give us this day our daily bread. But when you look closely at the word daily that Jesus uses in Matthew and Luke, it's a curious term. And the catechism comments on it. Now, you don't need to study Greek. You just need to read the catechism because the word in Greek that Jesus employs is epiousios. Epiousios. And it's problematic for translators because you look in all of the ancient Greek literature and the word was never used before our Lord used it. It's what scholars call a hapax legomenon. It's the only time it, it appears. And then, of course, subsequent to Jesus using it, you have hundreds of occurrences, but they're all after he coined this term, this neologism. So, you know, it gives translators fits. How do you translate epiousion? Well, at one level, it's pretty basic because it has that meaning of daily, and that was recognized later on. But upon closer analysis, you recognize that it's a compound word, epi-usios. Now, the word usios ought to be familiar to you if you're a theology major, if you've ever studied the Nicene Creed, because what was the term that was used there? Homoousios, consubstantial with the Father, right? But epi-usios is a different prefix. So epi-usios literally means above and beyond or super-substantial, super-essential. So at a deeper level, what Jesus is saying is give us this day our daily bread or even more, give us this day our super substantial bread. Now what do you suppose he might be referring to? Well, when I was a kid, we, we'd always hear the advertisements for wonder bread. You know, it builds strong bodies in 12 ways. Well, there's bread and then there is bread, but this isn't wonder bread. This is super substantial bread. And that's how St. Jerome translates it into the Latin for the Vulgate. Give us this day our super substantial bread. Gee, I wonder what he had in mind. It's the bread of life. It's Jesus. So the Catechism points out four levels of meaning here. On the surface, there's the temporal sense. Give us this day our daily bread. And then secondly, there's this qualitative sense. Give us this day our daily bread, this super substantial bread that corresponds to our needs. But the fact is we need a whole lot more than we think we need. We don't just need food. We need the food which when we consume it, it doesn't perish, neither do we. We need the, the food that endures to eternal life, as our Lord said. 
So the third level is the literal meaning, where you have this super substantial bread, and so the fourth and deepest meaning, as the catechism indicates, is the Eucharist. Give us this day our daily bread. And Augustine, in his commentary on the Our Father, points out that in the Old Testament, the Passover was only celebrated annually. But in the New Testament, the Passover, the New Covenant, which is the Eucharist, is celebrated daily. And why? Because Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Besides, he supplies that daily bread. And besides, you have the precedent of the manna back in the wilderness for 40 years where he did just that. But of course, when they crossed the Jordan, entered the promised land, the manna ceased. And so for more than 40 years, the manna continues in the form of the Eucharist. It isn't until we cross the, the real river of life and pass through death and enter something much greater than the land of Canaan, our heavenly inheritance, that promised land, that's when the manna will cease. When you go to heaven, you're not going to be looking around for the tabernacle or holy hours. You're not going to say, where's the Eucharist? Instead, you'll behold the face of Jesus, and then you'll see the connection. But this particular petition also does what we were talking about last night, and that is it plugs right into, right where it is, we pray it in the Mass, and right when it is that we offer it together as a family prayer. And when is it? Every time, right after the consecration and right before Holy Communion. And no wonder, because God the Father wants to win our trust, not less in the new than he did in the old, but immeasurably more. And by giving us something that exceeds the wildest dreams of the Israelites, he wants to not only win our trust, he also wants to reproduce Jesus Christ in us. In the Catechism 2837, for the Eucharist is already the foretaste of the kingdom to come. For this reason, it is fitting for the Eucharistic liturgy to be celebrated daily in order for God to convince us that in fact he is fulfilling all of his promises. Indeed, he's giving us this day super substantial bread. Be on the lookout, keep your eyes open because all three of the final petitions also come true more in the holy sacrifice of the mass than anywhere else. They come true everywhere else before and after the Holy Sacrifice, but most especially there. Let's move on to the next petition. Petition number five. Forgive us our trespasses, and we'll do our best to forgive those who trespass against us. <laughs> no, that's not it, okay. Forgive us our trespasses, and we'll forgive those who trespass against us. No, not exactly. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. <laughs> Yikes. Think about that. I mean, that falls right in line with a number of other statements that Jesus gives that, you know, at one level are really true, but at a deeper level are truly terrifying. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he says, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48. Now, it isn't a kind of perfectionist standard that is unattainable, that is meant to kind of either, you know, deceive us into thinking that we can perfect ourselves, or just put us into a, a paralysis because we know we can't. No, the word for perfect in Matthew 5.48 is teleos, which means mature. In other words, keep growing, keep maturing, grow up. It's one thing to be childlike, but that's not the same as being childish. So you put off childish ways, and in the process of spiritual growth, you become more and more childlike, and yet less and less childish. Likewise, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. A new commandment I give to you that you should love one another as I have loved you. These as's, you know, they're sort of intimidating, aren't they? And yet, God doesn't command anything that he doesn't empower us to do. St. Augustine said, God, you can command me to do whatever you please as long as your grace enables me to do it. 
And that's the trust that we have. And we've got to believe that he wants us to be holy more than we do. But in order to become holy, we have to take this petition into our minds, into our hearts, and internalize it more than we have. Let's try to figure out a way to paraphrase this, like we did with hallowed be thy name. I mean, again, that's a sort of awkward phraseology that we know, but we don't really use or understand very easily. What we saw at the first petition last night was, hallowed be thy name, basically translates out to make us saints and nothing less. In this case, I would paraphrase the petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in these terms. God is reminding us that we can't afford to hate the sins of others more than we hate our own. To be perfectly honest, I have no trouble hating sin, especially yours, <laughs> particularly when you commit them against me. I don't need any help in cultivating holy hatred for those sins. But the plain and simple fact is this. Those aren't the sins that could take me out of heaven and send me down to hell. Those aren't the kinds of sins that could extinguish the life of divine grace within my soul. Only the sins that I commit can do that. And so what we've got to recognize is the absolute need to partake of the supersubstantial bread, which is not only a thank offering, it's also a sin offering, not for mortal sins, that's what confession is for, but for venial sins, to empower us to do what we cannot do on our own. Forgiving other people when they sin against us, it isn't hard, it's just humanly impossible. We need God's help. We need the daily bread. We need Christ. But we also need to recognize that we have to hate our own sins more than others. What this reminds me to do is this. I've got to hate the sins that I commit the most and enjoy the most and excuse the most because they're the ones that will do the most damage now and forever if I let them. So forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What has God done to forgive us? You know, at one level, he's always been willing to forgive the trespasses of his people in the old as well as the new. But in the old, he was promising to do so, but he began the new by dying to do so. He was dying to forgive us. And now he's praying that we will appropriate that. He wants to forgive us more than we want him to. He's capable of cleansing us more than we can imagine. But in the process, what he knows is this. It's sort of like divine circuitry. If he's going to forgive us our trespasses, that's only going to be complete as a fatherly work in his family if he empowers us to forgive those who trespass against us. Think about how illogical it is for us to accept God's forgiveness but to withhold it from others. I mean, that's not just illogical, that's just plain dumb. But we do it. And why? Because God, you don't know how much it hurts. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know how much she hurt me. But what, what are we really saying? God, you've got your standards, but I've got mine. Well, we're not really saying that. Yes, we are. The Holy One of Israel, the God of the universe, was not only willing to forgive our transgressions when we sinned against the Holy and the Mighty One. He wasn't just willing to, He was dying to. And He's still willing to even after. We've heard all of the good news so, so many times. If Almighty, All-Holy God is willing to do that for us. Just who do we think we are to withhold it from others? Family members, roommates, co-workers, professors. <laughs> it isn't safe. It isn't right. And yet we still do it. 
But we have to recognize the need to not only ask for forgiveness, but also to give it. To give it as lavishly as God has. Because then we don't short circuit his mercy. Because his mercy is not just him being, you know, clement. It isn't just, you know, him pardoning. Mercy is more than pity. Ah, these poor sinners. Mercy is power. He doesn't just stoop down to us in our misery and weakness. He raises us up in his power and his love. That's mercy. And so if he's doing that for us, we've got to do it for others. Or if we don't, the whole process is short-circuited. The pipe gets clogged. And it isn't God saying, oh, forget it. If you're not going to forgive others, I'm going to stop forgiving you. I mean, you might think of it that way because of the parable where the ruler forgives this astronomical sum from the servant until that servant refuses to forgive a little bit amount from a lower servant. So he throws them back into prison and all of the rest. Well, I mean, the parable illustrates how important it is for us to extend the mercy of forgiveness to others, to our fellow servants. But it doesn't really get at the inner logic of why it is that God suddenly would withhold our forgiveness. It's because we've short-circuited the process. God isn't just willing to forgive sins. It's just what he does because it's who he is. He is sending us Christ, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. And so our sins are to his love what cold, hard ice is to the bright, warm sunshine. He forgives our sins because of who he is. And that only stops if we pull away from the light or we withhold it from others. I remember moving here back in 90 and Kimberly was relating the miscarriage and the interaction that we had with the president back then, Father Michael Scanlon, an amazing man. He's like a spiritual father to me still and to my kids. He, he baptized Jeremiah, Joseph, and David. And before Jeremiah went off to seminary to study for the priesthood, he went to Father Mike for confession and spiritual direction. And it's just an amazing thing. He's given us wisdom for so many years and so many others besides us have gotten it. It's, it's one of those sadnesses for me to recognize that so many people here hear his name and don't ever really get a chance to know him. But I remember the very first conversation I had with him was in his office right after I'd interviewed and we were basically discussing the contract that I was just jubilant. I couldn't believe this place would hire me. Still can't. But we were talking about various and sundry issues. And just, I think it was something he didn't plan on saying. It was sort of a throwaway line, but it stuck with me. He said, you know, God opposes the proud, even when they're right. And then he went on to say something else. I don't remember what that was. <laughs> God opposes the proud, even when they're right. So if we are forgiven by Almighty God our transgressions, and then turn around and withhold it from others, guess what we've succumbed to? Pride. And thinking that our standards are higher than God's, that the offenses committed against us are more grave and serious than the ones that we committed against. It just doesn't make any sense, and yet so often we let ourselves do things that are really nonsensical. God opposes the proud even when they're right. I would add this, God opposes the proud especially when they're right. Because when we're right about God's righteousness, when we're right about his mercy, and we're still proud, for our own sake he has to oppose us or else he isn't really loving us. As I said last night, God doesn't stop loving us when we sin. He doesn't start to love us less. He actually loves us just as much or more. And so when we think about the wrath of God, don't think of the wrath of God as opposed to his love. The wrath of God is not the opposite of his love. The wrath of God is an expression of his love. It's just how his love feels when we've turned our back on him when we started trusting ourselves more than we trust him. So this whole process of forgiveness is so central to the whole prayer, but to the whole life of grace. I just thought of something about a minute ago, and I wasn't going to say it, but it came back to me, so I will. You know, I, I mentioned a few moments ago the need that we have to ask for forgiveness, then to extend it, 
and somehow it's still hard for me. I remember giving a talk years ago, right before I came here. It was just a talk to a group of about 35 people on a Sunday evening out in California, in Riverside. And I, I noticed at the very beginning, somebody put a microphone up to me, you know, and so they were gonna record it. And so I gave a talk for about an hour on how I became a Catholic. And at the end, the guy said, oh, I'm going to use this, it's gonna do a lot of good. A year later, he told me 35 people heard the talk. Over 35,000 copies of the tape had been distributed. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. And then within about the span of 10 years, over three and a half million copies. And if I had known that, you know, way back, I'm not sure I'd have given the talk or allowed them to clip on the mic. But the fact is, in the talk, I, 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 used, I, I used a description of a fellow. I, I had met up with a priest in this small town, and uh, he was chain smoking. And he, he I, I, I can say this because the tape has been around us now on the internet. I, I talked about his rhetorical habits, um, which were, you know, not altogether upright and holy. And I just didn't think anything of it because I didn't think the talk was gonna be taped or the tape was gonna be distributed. But this particular priest who lives about an hour and a half from here, got the tape. <laughs> After all these people said, Father John, <laughs> this guy is talking about you. And sure enough, he heard it and he was hurt. And the parishioners told me. And I just felt so dumb. You know, and finally, I realized I need to call him and ask him to forgive me. And I, and I asked the Lord to forgive me. And then I came up with months of excuses not to call. In fact, more than two or three years went by. And then one night, I was alone, I finished my evening prayer, and it just came out of the blue, and I knew it was time. And so I called Director Information, I got the number for the Church of the Beloved Disciple in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and so I call. And it rings a couple of times, somebody picks up, can I speak to Father John Bicey? He said, you are, who is this? And I said, Scott Hahn. I'm not sure you, of course I remember you. Hold on one second, and he cups the phone, and I'm hearing a lot of crowd noise, room, you know, there are a lot of people in the room. And I hear him cup the phone, he says, it's Scott Hahn. And the room burst into laughter. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? It just seems surreal. Go on, Scott. And I'm like, well, I'm calling at last to apologize for something that I said that was taped and that I had no idea that it was going to be taped. And just one second, Scott, he cups the phone. He's calling to apologize. <laughs> and then the room bursts into applause. And I'm like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and I'm like, Father John, I am so sorry for the things that I said. You know, I, I know they're hurtful. I didn't intend, but I know that doesn't take away the hurt. And he's like, you're darn right it doesn't. He said, you know, when I heard what you said and then I actually heard the tape, it cut me. It really hurt. It caused me to have a crisis. And I went through a dark time. And I think I came out of it, a better priest. But, but it's not something that would excuse that kind of language. And I said, I know, I'm not trying to excuse it. He said, I forgive you, but I want you to know how deeply that hurt me. I'm like, thank you for forgiving me. And now he said, the last thing I wanna ask you is, who put you up to this? And I'm like, I'm not sure what you mean. He said, come on, who told you to call me tonight? <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, yes you do, because tonight is my retirement party. This is my last night at the parish. Tomorrow morning, I'm going off to a hunting cabin where there are no phones. So who here put you up to this? And I'm like, Father John, the only one was the Holy Spirit. And he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, I have procrastinated for too long, and God must have known. And he said, well, thank you for calling. When I hung up, I had the sense that God wants us not only to ask him for forgiveness, but to ask other people for forgiveness and to stop coming up with clever excuses as to why we postpone that. And not, you know, like, I'm sorry if that hurts you. That's a faux apology. I'm sorry if you're so hypersensitive that you took it the wrong way, you know? 
don't formulate apologies ever in conditional terms. I'm sorry if. You know, that's what politicians do. We call that spin. What penance is, I'm sorry that. And don't even add, I didn't mean to hurt you. Because you didn't mean to help them enough to figure out not to say it or do it. At least that's what's true for me when I really examine my conscience. God wants to make us holy more than we want him to. And he's capable of making us holier than we can make ourselves. This is why he's our father. This is why we're his children. And this is why we have got to forgive from the heart those who trespass us, trespass against us, just as God forgave from his pierced heart. And now we come to the petition number six. Lead us not into temptation. In some ways, this is the most problematic of all seven petitions. It has generated more controversy, more confusion. In fact, the great psychologist at the beginning of the 20th century, Carl Jung, when he wrote up his own life story, describes how he lost his faith because of this particular petition. Lead us not into temptation. It just provoked a crisis of faith from which he never really emerged. Because it just seems so incongruous. Lead us not into temptation. We have to look at it more closely. On the one hand, what we're really praying for is God lead us. That's the first part of the petition and the most important part. Lead us, but not into temptation. What does that mean? It's another way of saying, give us what we need. Don't give us what we want. If it isn't what you want for us. Why? Because that's where temptation arises. By our pursuing the things that we want when they don't correspond to what he desires for us as his beloved children to become future saints. There are a few texts that are relevant. In Matthew 18, verse 7, Jesus says, It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom temptation comes. So this is going to happen. It's unavoidable. But don't be the near occasion of sin. Do not in any way take out one of these little ones, as Jesus warns his disciples. At the same time, we recognize that that applies to humans but it doesn't apply in the same way to the Lord. Because in James 1, verse 13, we read, let no one, when he's tempted, say, I am tempted by God, for he tempts no one. It isn't as though God is up there, you know, enticing us through temptation, or alluring us by kind of leading us to do something that he knows we shouldn't do. That's not the inner logic of this petition. We're basically saying, lead us to what you want, don't lead us into what we want when it doesn't match. But at the same time, it helps to look at the Greek because the word for temptation in the Greek clarifies something that often confuses us because when we hear the English word temptation, we think of allurement, we think of enticement, we think of a kind of, you know, flirting with sin or sin flirting with us. When in fact, the word in Greek for temptation is parosmos, which literally means trial or test. So what we're really praying is, lead us not into the trial. Lead us not into the test. Lead us not into the parosmos. Now, why would God test us? It's something that he does, but it's not obvious as to why. You know, I know why I test you, because I have to, I'm under contract, you know? <laughs> I would do anything to dispense with testing. I hate grading more than everything else put together. <laughs> but I have to because I have to find out whether you learned it or not, right, as a professor. And sometimes testing also helps you learn things, but it's a good measure of whether or not you've learned your lessons. But in the case of the Lord God Almighty, doesn't he already know whether we've learned it or not? So I test you to find out what you've learned to figure out what grade I give. But God doesn't have any need to test us as to, you know, to find out what we've learned because he already knows it better than we know it ourselves. That's why he tests us, to show us ourselves and to reveal to us how much weaker we are than we think. 
and how much stronger he is than we realize. And how his strength is only made perfect in what? Our weakness. We tend to think that, yes, his strength is made perfect even in our weakness, but that implies that when we're strong, whoa, you know, his strength is going to be made even more perfect. Because at that point, God, you're my co-pilot. Okay, a little more humility. I'm your co-pilot. No, we're not. We're the cargo. <laughs> we're the baggage. <laughs> And it's a, very, it's a very important truth that we've got to learn here. So lead us not into the trial. Lead us not into the temptation. You can see that God tempts, God tests, God tries his loved ones. You know, beginning with Abraham. When you read the Genesis narrative, he undergoes a sequence of 10 trials, the rabbis enumerate. Until the 10th one is the ultimate test of obedience where he has to take the son he waited an entire century to be birthed and offer him as a holocaust. And of course he suspends the sacrifice the Lord does through the angel, but Abraham didn't know that. So why does God test us? Not only to show us who we are and what we are and how much we need and how much he has, but in the process the testing is also what transforms us like it did for Abraham, like it did for Moses, like it does for David, like it does for Job. But even in the case of Jesus, in Matthew 4, verse 1, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, but for 40 days of testing. And the word in Greek for lead is literally the Spirit drove him out. He, he hurls him into the wilderness after being baptized, after hearing the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. So, you know, it kind of reminds us of what St. Teresa of Avila said, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. But it's how he treats his friends. Because as we read in the book of Wisdom, chapter 3, God tested them and found them worthy of himself like gold that is refined and purified in the furnace. He tries them, and like a sacrificial offering, he accepts them so that in the day of visitation, they will shine in his glory. So he wants for us much more than what we're willing to settle for, but that always involves trial. And not just for us, but even for Jesus. And it's helpful to remember this because it's not how much Jesus suffered in his great trial that saves us. It's how much he loves. The love is what transforms the suffering into sacrifice. There are people out there who proclaim a gospel that make it seem as though God was just venting his divine spleen, taking it out on his son, when in fact the mystery of the cross is not a contradiction of the love of the Father, but an expression of the love of the Father. It is a life that is poured out. He's not losing his life on Friday. He'd already given it freely by instituting the Eucharist on Holy Thursday. More than the victim of Roman violence, he's the victim of divine love. And the love of the Eucharist transforms the pain of Calvary into a holy sacrifice. And not just for him, but also for us. Pain which is excruciating, becomes holy passion. If anyone would follow me as a disciple, he must do what every day? He must take up his rosary beads. Oh wait, that's not what he said. His Bible, no, his cross. When is that ever going to begin to get easy? So lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into trials, not into tests. You know, don't leave us to our own devices. Give us all that we need. And so we're wanting him to forgive us. We're also wanting him to feed us, but we're wanting him to lead us. But not where we want to go, but where he wants us to go. More could be said, but we don't have much time left. So let's move on to the seventh and final petition. Deliver us from evil. It's interesting because when you look at the Greek, again, and it helps. Deliver us from evil. In the Greek, there's a definite article in front of poneros. It's literally the evil one. 
So it isn't just generic bad stuff. It is the source of all the bad. It is the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. What does this seventh and final position imply? That we are in over our heads. That we are facing a foe who is hell-bent, quite literally, on taking us out forever, like he did to himself. It wasn't enough for him to commit spiritual suicide at the very beginning of creation. What is the expression, misery loves company? So if I'm going to hell, I'm gonna take as many with me as I can, why? Because is it going to minimize his misery? No! We don't know why people who are miserable want others to be miserable. It doesn't in any way diminish their misery. But it reveals the mystery of iniquity. And, and what a parasitical force it is in other people and in ourselves going all the way back to the devil. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, deliver us from suffering. Deliver us from unemployment. Deliver us from sickness. I mean, there's a sense in which we can certainly ask from the heart, God, heal me. Find me a job so that I can serve you, so that I can help others. But the one thing that we need him to deliver us from isn't to avoid sin, suffering. It isn't to avoid illness. It is to be delivered from evil, sin. This helps us to understand how we ought to think about good and evil, about right and wrong. Because still today you hear people say, who do you think you are as Catholic Christians to impose your morality on the rest of us and tell us that is evil? Well, the plain and simple fact is this. <laughs> We're nobodies. We have absolutely no right whatsoever to impose our morality upon anybody. But it's not our morality. It's God's. We're not imposing it. He is. We don't even have the right to impose our own morality upon ourselves. He's already imposed his on us because what he imposes is what he proposes out of love. The law of God is an expression of his love. What he defines as good is what perfects us. What he condemns as evil destroys us. He doesn't punish sin because we have too much. It's because we're settling for too little. And he made us for nothing less than himself. Not earthly goods, but heavenly goods. Not temporal pleasures, but eternal pleasures. Or as one man wrote in his spiritual diary shortly before he was martyred, he is no fool to give up what he can't keep to gain what he can never lose. And yet, and yet, and yet we still cling to the pennies and the nickels and the dimes and the quarters when God is saying, relinquish all of that so I can stuff your hands with really big bills. He wants to give us much, much more, but we settle for so much less because of the evil one, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not just outside of us, it's also inside of us. And so what we're asking God to do is to do something for us that we're not capable of doing for ourselves or for others. Deliver us from evil. And that word for deliver, that notion of deliverance is exhibited when Jesus expels demons, when Jesus cures illnesses, when Jesus raises the dead, when he gives sight to the blind, when he takes that paralytic and says, my son, take up your pallet and walk. Why? Because Jesus was not just a humanitarian. He wasn't just interested in healing people because if that was his primary interest, he didn't fulfill it all that well. You know, three years, couldn't he have stuck around for like 30 or 40? Palestine, couldn't he have gone to Rome and Athens and maybe Europe? I mean, he healed thousands, but there were millions who were sick. Well, there's a certain sense in which he has compassion on all, even those he doesn't reach. But as St. Augustine says, when he healed the paralytic, before he healed him, what did he say? My son, your sins are forgiven. And what are his opponents thinking to themselves? Nobody has the power to forgive sins except God. And Jesus knew their thoughts, but he didn't say, oh, you're wrong. You all have the power to forgive sins because he agreed with them. 
Only God can forgive sins. It's just that he knew something they didn't know, and that was standing before them was no mere man, but the God-man. God made man, God in the flesh. And so when he said, my son, your sins are forgiven, he was actually performing two divine works. He only performs the healing secondarily to prove that he had the power to heal that man's soul of the real disease of sin, which was the primary divine prerogative that he exercised. And as Augustine said, sin is what paralyzes us more than any illness. Sin is what blinds us. Sin is what causes us to be deaf. Sin is what causes spiritual death. He knew that Lazarus was sick unto death. Why didn't he go to the grave? Or why didn't he go to visit him before he went to the grave? To illustrate what God's grace does for us, not just physically but spiritually, not just temporally but eternally. What the mercy of God is capable of doing is delivering us from evil by taking it out at its root. Not only Satan, but from our hearts as well. To recognize that it is not physical blindness, physical deafness, physical paralysis. It is the spiritual disease that we so often play games with. This is what makes us deaf and blind. This is what paralyzes us and kills his life within our soul. And this is what we need to be delivered from and this is something that we absolutely need God to do. In a certain sense, he saved the best to last. Because ultimately, at the end of the seven petitions, comes a promise that he will deliver us, not only from hunger through daily bread, you know, not only from guilt through forgiving us, not only from difficulties when we face trial, but at the end of time, he's going to fulfill what he gives us at the end of this prayer. He's going to deliver us, but in the meantime, he's going to humble us through our suffering. He's going to sanctify us through our obedience. He is going to make it easier and easier for us to obey because when you obey out of love, the burden grows lighter. This is the promise of the seventh petition, but this is the power of all seven. This is a prayer that we've only scratched the surface of. You might think, well, you know, last night and this morning we, we, went, on, we went really deep. I would say maybe two and a half inches, maybe three. It's inexhaustibly deeper than what we have done. And as we pray it more and more, and especially in the rosary, where we get to go not only to our father, but to our mother, we discover who we are, and that is their beloved children. It's not only something that helps me overcome my identity crisis, it also helps me to see all of you through the eyes of the Blessed Mother and to see through the eyes of the Holy Father. And again, it's who we are. It's what we do. And it's why we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.